You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, welcome to Heritage Radio Network On Tour. I'm Lisa Held. Today, we're broadcasting live from the Young Farmers Conference at Stone Barns. We want to thank the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts and the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture for making our coverage possible. So now we have a packed panel, <laughs> um, three, three farmers uh, we're going to be speaking with, uh, Javon Sage, the alchemist behind Sage's Larder in Georgia, David Bolin of Bolin Family Farms in Missouri, and Jermaine Jenkins, the co-founder and CEO of Fresh Future Farm in North Charleston, South Carolina. Thank you all for being here. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. us. So you are all from different parts of the country. You all do really different things. So let's just quickly do an elevator pitch. Tell me a little bit about what you do, your farm, your business. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So um, that's usually a long list of and, and, and. Um, but, but I'm Javon Sage. I am the alchemist behind Sage's Larder, um, which is a multi-level service company that um, I work as a birth worker, as an herbalist, as a wellness coach, and as a chef. And so for me, I see the intersection of healing um, ourselves through plants and um, food. I believe that food is medicine and food is healing, and that also lends into my land-based work um, with Gilliard Farms, which is our African-American centennial family farm based in Brunswick, Georgia. Do you work on the farm as well? I do, I do. My actual apothecary is located on the farm. Amazing. But I'm originally from Kansas City, Missouri. So oh, wow. got some Missouri, Missouri action Missouri connections. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm David Bolin, uh, owner of Bolin Family Farms. And what we do <laughs> is um, we work with a lot of plant breeders, seed collectors, and... Um, Seed smugglers. <laughs> oh, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> we won't go deep we're into it. We're coming back to that. <laughs> right. Um, to, to try and find some, some of the most delicious stuff that we can grow in our region with the, the complications that we have with uh, the extreme climates that we kind of deal with, our summers and our winters both being very extreme. Um, and uh, most of our product goes to restaurants and chefs. We also do a farmer's market and a very small CSA. Great. Jermaine? Hey, everybody. I'm Jermaine Jenkins, um, co-founder, chief farm officer for Fresh Future Farm in North Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, we operate a farm and a grocery store in a, in a neighborhood that experienced food apartheid since the last traditional grocery store closed in 2005. So we um, are working to um, grow jobs and healthy food for people that live in that neighborhood. Mm. So I think what's really cool about this panel is you're all from really different places, uh, despite the <laughs> past Missouri connection. Um, how does the place that you're in, the land, the community, the people, how does that affect 
how you do what you do. Mm, mm. I can touch on that. Yeah. Um, so Brunswick, Georgia, um, our farm is about 15 minutes from the beach and 30 miles from Florida. Um, we're zone 9A. We are subtropical. Nice. Um, and this year, you know, as we're, you know, on the, uh, in many ways, the front lines of uh, how climate change is playing out, um, we got started getting 100 degree weather, 107 in May. Oh um, which normally doesn't happen until maybe late, late June, early July. Um, and it pretty much kept up the 90s and 100s all the way till October. Um, so for us, um, we're, we're having to like rethink how we also approach um, our land-based work because that's hot, y'all. But we can also grow, um, for the most part, year-round. Um, mm. I was actually just in the, the greenhouse here um, at Stone Barns um, doing a, a demo for, for the farmers where I brought in hibiscus and prickly pear um, fruit from our farm mm. and also used some of the ginger and the turmeric and the cardamom leaves that are, that are grown here. We also grow cardamom, ginger, and turmeric. It just wasn't ready to, to harvest. And so for us, like think about those subtropical plants um, that you love to have, that, that rich, pungent flavor of the ginger. Um, the, our, our hibiscus grows to be about um, seven to eight feet tall. Dang, um, wow. <laughs> so it, it loves the heat. It loves, it loves the, the rain as well. And so for us, um, part of that is balancing um, the, you know, the different kinds of seeds and stuff that we bring in, finding out what's going to be growing as our, you know, climate is doing this kind of shifting. Um, and for us as farmers, like how can we find new ways to, to be resilient um, in the face of multiple hurricanes in the last few years, whereas we normally wouldn't have to worry about any kind of hurricane based on where, where our farm is at. And so for us, it's, it's finding new ways to be resilient in the face of that, but also like continuing to find that, that joy in working the soil. Right. Absolutely. Um, I'll say that you said how much does it affect? It affects everything for us, um, especially our, our climate, because we're mainly a production, somewhat experimental farm as well, but the weather and the, the pest pressure and the fungus pressure and even just the community uh, that, that our product gets distributed in, um, it definitely determines what we're growing, what time of the year we're growing it, and where exactly those things are going. And so, like I was saying before, we get fairly hot summers. I, I said very hot before, but that was before she, <laughs> <laughs> before she told us about back. her summers. Yeah, um, We get fairly hot summers in Missouri and very, very cold winters, um, which allows us to grow a wide spectrum of different vegetables and, and fruits but it also can be limiting as it, the hot weather doesn't stay for long enough to grow right. cardamom. <laughs> we can squeeze the ginger and turmeric crop in, um, but yeah, it, it's, it definitely decides where our seeds are coming from. That's why a lot of our seeds come from Japan. A lot of our varieties grow very well here uh, as they do in Japan where they have hot summers, humid summers, and, and cold winters, and so. What do you mean when you say you're an experimental farm? Um, and I wouldn't say we're an experimental farm, but I, I will say we experiment more than your average farm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Just like with the varieties that you grow? The varieties, the, 
the way that we grow certain crops. This year we we were gifted some very amazing varieties of turmeric and ginger, like a, a turmeric and ginger cross that Whoa. we're calling golden ginger. Um, hmm. Apparently, it was found growing wild in Thailand. Whoa. Yes, and um, and a farmer from from there moved to Florida and grows it there. And one of my buddies found it at the farmer's market and now grows it himself and shared it with us. Also some interesting varieties of turmeric, like a green turmeric, white turmeric, black turmeric, yellow turmeric, um, all which we had decided not to grow in the past because I heard those plants needed partial shade and grow best grown indoors or within a greenhouse or hoop house because our winter comes a bit earlier right. than some place, um, some other places where ginger and turmeric grow well. And so this year we experimented with growing them in the fields without cover in the open sun. Basically everything they told us not to do with ginger and turmeric, <laughs> that's exactly what we did. And, um, and it produced an excellent crop. Wow. Um, we, yeah, I mean, we neglected it. We, we wanted to see what it would do. Right. Grown in, you know, in the least ideal conditions because we know it will improve when given the attention that it needs. And so we wanted to, we wanted to kind of experiment with how, how resilient of a crop it could be for us and how hardy it was to the different um, things that we face, our droughts. You know, one of the reasons that I learned that it ideally has partial shade is because that keeps a consistent moisture of where you don't want the, <clears throat> the topsoil really drying out too much to get proper root production, uh, rhizome production. And so there were some things to learn um, to understand the reasons why they grow well in the conditions that most people grow them in. And there were some adaptations that needed to be made so that we could grow them out in the field. But the field space is a lot less valuable than hoop house and greenhouse space. And so if we can grow ginger and turmeric out in the fields, we're in a lot better place. Right. Absolutely. Jermaine, do you want to talk a little bit about how where you are impacts your work? Well, uh, we're probably five minutes, you know, from like water where we are in the coastal plains of North Charleston. And similar to a jo jo Joven, sorry, um, experience, it was like 100 degrees in May. So our blueberries were like dried blueberries on the vine. And we are intentional about dry farming. So mm. that's making, that's making it real tough. We mulch our our beds and such, but um, we have in a point eight acre space like 50 trees on the exterior we're going to start planting banana trees like throughout um, throughout our space so that we can still like be limited on the amount of water we use but it's also kind of testing like how how and when we plant crops because it's you can see right there in the field that is changing from year to year right so, yeah so so we're we are going to plant a lot more banana trees. And I'm, I'm hoping to get, like, we have three varieties right now. I'm hoping to get, like, uh, like four or five more. 
I need to get some of those too. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and if you've ever had a chance to to visit her farm, it's absolutely amazing. Because if you've never seen a banana tree in person, they're like the silliest trees you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> yeah, and and hers are glorious. So I and, just, and you would love it because it's a giant herb. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, and we just harvested some bananas before I, I came here. Wow. Yeah, That's yeah, incredible. yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> it's you. I mean, yeah, probably most people, especially here, have never seen a banana oh, tree. No. Yeah. I'm moving. Oh. I'm leaving my farm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go work at their farms and yeah, convince them to grow some mangoes too. Oh no, oh, I'm. Wow. Uh, I'm trying, like, uh, with limited resources, because the whole goal is for people, you know, with limited resources to be able to replicate what we're doing. So dry farming, bananas, sugarcane, hibiscus, but the hibiscus, like, was weird this year. Um, and, like, B.J. Dennis, Gullah Chef, told me that his grandfather remembered there being coconut trees in our area. Uh -huh. So I just got two coconuts. So we're going to try one out in our banana circle and the other in our crop tunnel. So wow. we'll see what happens. Amazing. Sounds like really all of you are doing experimental <laughs> yeah. farming. You, as a farmer, you, just, you have to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Jermaine, you have an interesting economic model on your farm too that um, I'd love for you to talk about. And because you run a grocery store too, yes. right? Yes, we Can do. Can you talk a little bit about that model? Well, uh, we are intentional in not being a farmer's market because our neighborhood need a grocery store. So uh, in order for us, you know, with limited resources to make it happen, we reuse everything, including the building that is our grocery store. It's a modular building that used to be like a rental car space at a car dealership um, six miles up the road from us. And in that space, um, just looking at what SNAP requires folks to sell, uh, you know, you only have to have three varieties of canned shelf-stable produce, where we have 10 varieties of fresh produce plus a few of the canned, because our customers want the fresh, not the canned stuff. And um, because we're employing people that live in a neighborhood that's gentrifying, we pay 15 bucks an hour starting um, salary. But what we found, um, in addition to that, so that because we, we lost a couple good folks because uh, that low quality housing was expensive, we're going to have to work in um, housing and childcare to keep our workforce. And the, and the goal for us is for people not to stay there unless you know, they want to, but to leave, start their own businesses, hopefully start their own experimental farms yeah. so that we can source um, products from other people that are doing that work. But um, it's, it's tough, but it's necessary if we want um, people with limited resources not to be like pushed into um, the middle of nowhere. But everything in South Carolina is developing, so I don't know where like folks will end up, like in the ocean or something. I don't know. But yeah, so we, we have to be intentional about fighting um, food apartheid on a bunch of different levels. Right. And there's a tension because you're trying to provide food, affordable food for a community that needs it, but also pay Wages, high wages, right, and make your, your business viable. Um, I'd love to hear from Javon or David, too, if you have any thoughts on just what you've learned over the years in terms of making your business economically viable um, so that you can kind of 
get to more people, but also, yeah. you know, pay yourselves. Absolutely, and <laughs> absolutely. Pay yourselves, what's that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I mean, what's, you know, I think what's also for unique for us is that, you know, up until last year, we'd actually been running um, our own restaurant in the city of downtown Brunswick, um, where we're at. So, you know, for us, our restaurant, I mean, you know, we tried to make as many things as accessible as possible. We taught cooking classes and that kind of stuff. Um, but we also did dinner with like wine and, you know, bottle service and all of that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. so for us, we found that we had to basically create our own lane in order to like make the farm more economically viable for us. So mm -hmm. we provided you know, vegetables, all of that kind of stuff for our restaurant. Um, and then for me, one of the reasons they call me the food alchemist is because um, I make products. So I make value-added products from, you know, um, kimchi and kraut to kombucha and herbal teas. And so that was one of the ways in which I was able to, you know, pay myself a little something. Um, right. But it also meant the, the grind of farmer's markets and, you know, infrastructure and, you know, figuring out labor, like who's going to help me be in the kitchen, to be bottling, to be out on the front lines at the farmer's market. And mm -hmm. so so there's, you know, trade-offs to that. Um, we were able to do some really amazing work. Our restaurant was in business for over um, four years. And I think our last year, we actually got a James Beer nomination. And so okay. we knew we, we were doing great work. But as far as like being able to pay ourselves and, and being able to hire quality staff that can run it the way that we run it, um, it was one of those things that we ran into challenges with. And it's, and it's also the challenge of our area. I mean, for us, our city, um, our county, we have about 80,000 people who live there. 40% um, of those folks are below the poverty line. The wealth is actually concentrated on the barrier islands or what mm. used to be known as the millionaire islands. <laughs> um, and we have 2.6 million tourists that come through here. So for us, hospitality is like where a lot of our people in our community get jobs. And oftentimes, um, because of the way um, the uh, different laws are made here, um, so many people who come in on visas are often um, prioritized over the local job force. So we have a lot of unemployment um, in our communities, um, especially for our black part of the community. And so one of the things that we're doing is, you know, working with some of the different agencies to create an actual culinary like farm to table um, program to where we can train our local resource to not just be you know a dishwasher or a line cook but to ultimately take on things like entrepreneurship right. or management um, within these places where they're often overlooked for these jobs and so for us it's part of you know how do you train a workforce um, to 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 be in those higher positions, um, to not always be the one who's cut once the season gets a little right. slow, but that they're actively managing and running these places and have the, um, the capacity and the skills to do so. Um, so I think that that's like one of our, our largest like issues is like how do we get our people into those positions and with those skills? And you know, it's, it's a heart project for us, but it's also the things that we wish we would have had like the ability to like hire on a server or a cook or a sous or whatever that looked like who could speak the language of like farm to table mm. dining and who could, you know, um, know how to deal with the safety laws and the labeling in the kitchen without us having to always show and teach. And, and that would have allowed us to like build people up into greater parts of leadership so then we could go and focus on the other things. Right. And you work with restaurants a lot, David, right? That's your main market. 
Um, what, is, what are some of the, the economic challenges that you face, or have you found that there is a really great market for selling to restaurants? There is a great market for selling to restaurants, I'm sure, in all of these places in St. Louis specifically. It's, it's, it's a growing food scene, fine dining scene, farm to table. Um, but it comes with its own challenges, you know. I was speaking with speaking with a couple of people earlier on this trip just about payment methods. That's always um, an interesting topic to get into when you're opening a new account or starting a new account with someone is um, how do they handle payment. And, <clears throat> you know, the standard currently in St. Louis, and I'm not sure, I can't speak about other places, um, is, you know, is not cash upon delivery. It is, you know, They'll mail you your check in about two weeks from delivery um, whenever they send out payments to the rest of their employees. But right. as, as a farmer, I am not an employee. The restaurants are my customers. And so uh, payment has been kind of a, an op I mean, a ongoing discussion with a lot of these accounts that we have as some people outsource their accounting. So that makes co uh, payment complicated. Um, and so that's, that's probably, you know, it's, it's a very profitable business. It, it has been very profitable for us, but if I'm bringing my product someplace in a timely manner, I would only hope that I'm being paid in a timely manner. Yeah. Because I don't know if there's any restaurants that exist that you could go in there and say, I'm gonna eat two days out of this week, and I'm going to pay you at the end of the week. No, that doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> and as a freelance journalist, I feel you on that. Exactly. <laughs> Half so. of the job is right, chasing down yeah. payments, yeah. and it should, that's, just, you know, it's crazy. It's not what we want to be doing. So that's, that's definitely one of the challenges with, with working with restaurants and markets and things of that sort. It's just figuring out how to make the payment method work for both parties mm -hmm. and make it make sense. Did you want to? Well, uh, Joven reminded me of something that uh, I guess for us to be competitive and support the neighborhood through outreach, do sliding scale at our grocery store, um, we have to draw in customers that don't live there. So uh, we are um, actively working to bring in like grocery product from like black women minority producers and we even have some of um some oh, sage's lauder tea yes oh, that's yes amazing. and it's selling out i gotta get i, I gotta um restock i, 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 I told you. you yeah but there's there's probably like 10 other products of yours it's you know especially you know we when we think about um places where people are disproportionately impacted by um chronic illness related to food, having like that, that is it the reishi mushroom? Mm -hmm. We need that tonic yeah. at the farm because people come for us, to us for food that heal like internally and externally. Somebody had an infection on the eyeball, slap a collard green on there mm -hmm. and, they'll, <laughs> and they'll take it all out. But um, so, so we're, we're adding components where we train, we have it like staged so it's a cultural space because we talk about ethnobotany and stuff mm. we'll, when we do our camps up to like grown up stuff. But we also are going to hire a chef part time to 
produce these culturally relevant um, heat and eat meals using our products. So um, we're going to be able to have an impact on people's health. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so we have to wrap up in a second, but before we do, um, I would love for each of you just to um, give a piece of advice for young farmers who are starting out. You all have these incredible different businesses that and are really far along in that journey. So for young farmers are, who are watching, who um, <laughs> need a little the help pressure, getting started. The pressure right now. <laughs> um, well, and I'll, you know, because I've been talking to young farmers for the last, like, three hours. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, was, I, was, I was down in the greenhouse. So, um, so for me, I think one of the things that, that I understand is that, you know, if you, if you just want to farm and you just want to talk to the vegetables or the livestock or whatever, then you need to go find a farming job. If you want to be a farmer and, like, farm your own land, you get to be a marketer, a social media expert, mm-hmm. website builder, experimental seed importer. Um, you, Smuggler. You get to be the janitor, mm-hmm. the mechanic, yes. all of those things. Because, and, you know, you work the farmer's market and you break right. down the farmer's market. And so think, think about that, like, when you're thinking about, you know, what it looks like to be a farmer. Um, there aren't a ton of paying farmer gigs, at least not in the, in the South in that same way. There's mm-hmm. a few here and there. But if you're trying to be your own farmer, like understand that you are signing up to be an entrepreneur um, and you don't get to just sit in the field and not talk to people. Like your job as a farmer is to spread the good food gospel um, in that way, is to have those conversations, to tell people about what they can do with this vegetable. Like you have to know a bit of culinary. You have to know a little bit about healing like you know you really have to be this well-rounded person who you know if you don't have the answers you can find the answers um you have to make sure your farm stand is super cute you know (laughs) baskets chalkboards like you have to make it look cute because you have to figure out how do you differentiate yourself from other like organic sustainable farmers or how do how do you differentiate from the sticker farmer who just got a whole bunch of vegetables off mm. of a truck and has their stand set up right next right. to you? Um, so you have to be innovative, you have to be creative, and you have to be able to connect with people in this deep way because you are the closest connection that the public has to the ground and to the dirt and to where their food comes from. So be ready to do that education. Absolutely. David? I want to touch on what she just said about differentiating yourself. That's definitely a, a very valuable thing is to have something that sets you apart from the many other food producers in an already established industry. Um, for us, we're still working on beautifying our, our farm stand. And that's not my strong point. <laughs> now, my strong point is, is sourcing delicious delicious things and, and finding the best way to cultivate them for us in, in our operation. And, um, and so just know that it's not something that takes off in the first year, really. It's, it's a, lot of, a lot of learning. It's a lot of hours. You're not going to get paid what you wish or what you think your time is worth per hour. You won't. In my experience, I can't speak for you guys, but you're right. <laughs> you're gonna be working more hours than you ever have in your life, and it's it can be discouraging. Even even with all the uplifting compliments and yeah. all the smiling faces of people enjoying the food, 
it, it can be discouraging and you just have to understand that it's, it's not a, even though the day to day can be very challenging, the big picture is what you need to be focusing on and planning on. Uh, it's, because if you are nearsighted, you will give up. <laughs> Don't give up. Well, um, I want to piggyback off the great things that both of y'all said, but start with um, perseverance has to be like in your bones before you start this work because you're not going to get paid. Some of your crops are going to fail. All of these things that are outside of your control are going to happen. But if you have a well-written vision and know where you want to go, that's what's going to help you get up in the morning. And if you don't know how to jizz up your um, farm stand, that's where you um, use the resources that are in your own household. Because it was my... Um, my children and my husband that helped me do this when we weren't getting paid mm -hmm. for us to get to a point where we can pay other people that live in the neighborhood mm -hmm. to help us. So don't, don't farm in isolation. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. Thanks again to the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for making our on tour coverage possible and to Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture for having us here at the Young Farmers Conference. I'm Lisa Held. Stay tuned for more. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.